we are, we're getting towards the end of this semester in, in school, so I want to paint a picture for us that's probably not too unrealistic. Imagine um, that, that you've been sitting in math class all semester, um, and you're learning how to accomplish, how to solve this, this complex problem, and, and you don't really do the homework, you don't really take it home with you, you don't really think about it outside um, of math class, but you feel as though you've, you've seen the teacher do it enough. This was me. I've seen the teacher do it enough. I feel like I have a grasp of what's going on. I, I can look at it and solve it because she's been looking at it and solving it for us. And then, because teachers are thieves of joy, Friday comes and she decides to throw um, a pop quiz uh, on this subject. And this thing that we, we thought we knew because we had sat and seen people doing it, uh, we finally get to the point where we have to do it and you've all had that feeling where you're sitting in front of a problem um, or an equation and you're just like, well, <laughs> we should pray. Um, and, uh, and you stare at it and nothing gets done and you're like, I've seen this done, I've heard how you do it, but I can't for the life of me um, remember how to do it. And, and this is really where we're at in the book of Ephesians. Paul has hammered again and again and again in these first four and a half chapters that the root of the gospel of Christ in his mercy coming and dying on a cross for your sins should be the shaping influence on your life. But if up until this point in the book of Ephesians, you have not taken that gospel home with you, you have not mulled over that gospel in your heart, you have not treasured that gospel and submitted to that gospel the rest of this book is going to be really challenging for you, and it's going to be frustrating for you, and you're going to feel like you have no idea what it's talking about, and the results are unattainable. Because Paul has given us the theory of everything, but now he's giving us practice problems. And this is where the rubber meets the road. This is where reality happens. Reality for Paul is where the gospel meets everything else, and the way they intermingle is the most real this world will ever be. And so I want us to pray before we get rolling into today's text because many of us will see what this passage is calling us to do. Um, and even as we proceed through the rest of um, Ephesians 5 and Ephesians 6, it's going to be telling us to do things. And some of us may ignore those things because we feel like we can't do them or we don't need to do them. Or maybe we'll look at them and say, I can deal with that when I'm older. Um, but... The gospel is a, is a thing that works on us now. The gospel is not a deferred thing you wait until you, you have kids and a family and a stable job and life kind of slows down. The gospel is something that labors on you now and you want to be changed by that gospel as soon as possible. So let's pray um, that God gives us the vision and the ability to do what Paul is talking about. So Lord, we come before you um, as a people incapable of doing much but sin. Um, and uh, Lord, we, we know that any good that happens in us is a good and perfect gift from above. And so as we look at the words of Paul tonight, Lord, as we look at um, the narrowing effect of sin, but the uh, benevolent and corporate gift of grace, I pray that it resonates inside of each and every one of us, that through the power of the Holy Spirit, we are able to do what you have called us to do, to be whom you have made us to be. And Lord, I pray first and foremost that our hearts are um, being labored on by the Holy Spirit um, because uh, we do not desire the change that you have made, but by your grace, you continue to present this change and make us into an image bearer of you. And so we love you, Lord. We give you this time. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. So um, I just realized that I say amen twice because 
I always like say amen after someone's done praying. And so I, this is me just thinking on my feet. I went amen. And then I was like, amen. That's about when I would say it if someone was praying. So that's me being weird and ritualistic. Um, but, uh, I, you know, before we get into this passage, we have to remember what Stephen spoke on last week um, in Ephesians 17 through 14, because these passages deeply play off of each other. You can't fully understand one unless you see what the other's pointing to. And so I want us to um, look, I'm just going to read through what Stephen read last week, and I really want you to pay attention to the words that Paul is using here. So here we go. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are dark in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. They have become calloused and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming you have heard about him and you were taught in him as a truth in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to the former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your mind and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And so what we have here is a, is a classic Pauline put on, put off passage of scripture. And so many times um, the biblical authors, particularly Paul, refers to what's called the old self and the new self. Um, and, and the old self is who we are in sin. It's old. It's dead. It, it represents the law. It represents things that we can't free ourselves from, who we are without Christ. We are dead in our old self. But the new self is Christ. And in the New Testament, um, I mean, you see so much language of newness, of new creation. We talked about that a little bit on Sunday when we looked at conversion. The new self is what Christ has made us in himself. And so there are two things here. You need to put off the old self. That means you need to put off sin. And see, the beauty is that when you, uh, without Christ, you're held captive to sin, but in Christ, you're conquerors over sin because Christ has conquered sin. And you see that in Romans where he says, um, we are more than conquerors. If there's something better than conquerors, if there's a greater verb than to, to conquer, we are in that because Christ did that over sin. And so you need to kill sin. You need to put off sin because Christ has given us the power to do just that. And that's where you see the famous um, John Owen line. Is, it's kill sin or sin will be killing you. To put off sin is to kill sin. And it's interesting to see how Paul describes this sin in that text that we just read. We see, we see phrases like hardness of heart, calloused, given up to sensuality, greedy to practice sin, and deceitful. And if you look at those words and step back, what you really notice is, is the, corporate, uh, the corporate nature of sin. Those things all impact other people. Um, they're, they're not an inward thing where sin, as Stephen pointed out last week, sin is first and foremost against God. When you've sinned against someone or when you've been sinned against, the greatest thing is not how that other person or how you respond to it. The greatest thing is that you've sinned against a holy and pure God. But not only is sin against God, sin is also against community. And you see those words, if I were to describe to you a community that's deceitful, manipulative, greedy, and selfish, we would say, well, that's not a healthy community. But Paul just used words of that language to describe what you're putting off. Put off 
greedy sensuality. Put off manipulation. Put off deceit. Leave those away because your sin is a burden on those who you're around. Your sin is seen and felt and harmful to everyone you come in contact with. Now, we may, we may think here, and this is the common argument for, um, you know, something just happened on Twitter. My computer just told me. Um, you might want to mute that just because, you know, I get so many Twitter followers in a day. So, um, but, but the common thing that people object to Christianity on is that, you know, why does, why, I'm a good person, why should I go to hell? And we may look at our friends, most of us, I hope, have some sort of non-Christian friends, um, and hopefully we're sharing the gospel with them um, as we get to know them. But we look at those friends and say, you know, really, they're not any more versed in deceit and malice and manipulation than I am. Like, I enjoy hanging out with them. It's not like they come in and they're this sinner who's not saved, and they just start, like, in my face. They're like, you're an idiot, and I hate you, and I'm lying to you out of my mouth. Like, Santa Claus isn't real. Um, and, and all of our dreams are dashed by these people. It's like, these are people who, who, for the most part, talk and act and work and live just like us. But the issue with sin is that you can't simply put off sin and be fine. It's not simply that you could stop the, the act of committing sin and be fine. You also need to put on Christ. Because Christ didn't die to make us neutral. Christ died to make us like Christ. And that's what we just saw in Ephesians. If you look at the first part um, of, of 21, and then at 24, it says this. It says, uh, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth in Jesus, to put off the old self, which belongs to the former manner, and then skip down to verse 24, it says, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So think of it this way. One of my least favorite things to do um, as a parent is to change Owen's clothes. Um, he's, he's one year old and, and changing clothes is like trying to put horseshoes on a cat. And it's just like he's wiggly and squirmy and it just, he wants to roll over all the time. Um, and so it's not a fun thing to do. And so if I'm with him um, one day and Sarah's at work, I take on the diaper duties. I understand I need to change the diapers, right? Though that's, the, that's the obvious thing. So it's like, I need to put off certain aspects of sin. You shouldn't be drug dealers. You shouldn't be prostitutes. You shouldn't be murderers. Like, that's the dirty diaper. I understand that. I am required to change the dirty diaper. And so I'll go through a day and I'll change dirty diapers, um, but I'll never change his clothes. And so the clothes he woke up in that morning or the morning before were the clothes he slept in that night were the clothes I found him sweating in his crib that morning of. Um, and then as the day progressed, he does more things in those clothes and I change the diapers and put, he's not pooping in his clothes, he's just keeping the clothes. And I put them on, but at the end of the day, you can sniff Owen, clean diaper and all, and he smells like trash. Um, because his clothes have been neglected. The, the biggest part of who he is is still clean because it doesn't look dirty. It doesn't seem dirty, but it doesn't have new clothes. And the clothes have been tainted by even the things that were in the past that had been changed. And that's because I could change all the diapers I want. I could put away all those things that are visibly nasty, things that obviously need our attention. But if I'm not diligent in changing the larger part of who I am, I'll still be foul in the end. I still need to put new clothes on Owen because getting rid of the obvious things isn't making him fully clean. There has to be a change towards something, not simply away from something. See, we need to put off sin 
We also need to change our behavior. We need to put on new clothes, to use that, that illustration, new clothes which respect the transformation that Christ has done in our hearts. You see, we can't change ourselves. You can't. You can't think hard enough. You can't go to church enough. You can't worship hard enough. You can't sing loud enough to change yourself. Christ has changed you in the cross. Your life is just a wrestling match over if you're going to act like someone who's changed or act like someone who's still living in their own life. You're really just wrestling with yourself. You're not wrestling with the, the, the powers of the air because Christ defeated them. Those are done. You're wrestling with your old self that Christ has killed because you're trying to put on the new self and sin does not like Christ. And so it's only after understanding this, understanding the putting off and the putting on, and that we put on because Christ has conquered, only when we understand that, when we see the dirty effects of sin and the need for something more, can we move on to tonight's passage. Um, because uh, when we put off sin, which is harmful towards God and others, only then can we put on Christ who is a glory to God and a benefit to those who are around us. And so in contrast to all of those selfish words that we saw in the first passage, those words which take from everyone, those words which harm everyone, those, those words which are toxic towards community, we're going to look at five corporate benefits which come from putting on Christ. Because that's where this last passage ended. It ended with, and put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in the true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, okay, so it's in light of this is where we pick up our passage today, verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, there's the putting off, let each one speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. And so the first corporate benefit we have in putting on Christ is corporate truth. It's corporate truth. You see, as sinners, um, we tend to build up facades and weak relationships which tend to shelter the, the intimacy of who we are from other people. We're really good at lights and mirrors and kind of deflecting people so we can present, especially with social media, we can present exactly who we want to be perceived as. When I was in high school, I went to a Christian high school and had a, had a couple friends who I was really close with. And we went through high school, and then we went into college, and we, we lived together, we roomed together, um, we took road trips together, we spent summers together, um, but the majority of the talks we had were pretty superficial. In fact, I could maybe count on three fingers the amount of talks we had that got past the superficial level of, of sports, movies, school, and family. And, and I can't tell you as to why my friends we're comfortable simply talking. It's good to talk at that level. You shouldn't, be a weird, you shouldn't go meet someone on the street and like just start talking about like your deep past. Um, there, there, is, there is a place to have casual conversation over current events and sports and pop culture and all of that. But when you really get to know somebody, there needs to be an aspect where you're, you're speaking truth to each other. And, and I don't know why they didn't go to this level. I can't speak to them, but I know why I did it. I did it because... I didn't want my life to be seen underneath that. Because underneath this superficial level um, of having good grades and participating in sports and having popular friends, I was a mess underneath that. I wasn't reading my Bible. I didn't have a prayer life. I was constantly looking at pornography and I felt extremely empty. And yet I went to church and I, and I said I was a Christian and I was a Christian um, and all of this, but I never let anyone see that. 
I never even wanted to discuss that, mainly because those topics weren't great conversation starters, right? You're not thought well of if you bring that to your friend. It seems like something that's like, ah, well, you're dirty, go clean yourself up, and then let's talk about fantasy football. Um, and yet, Paul is pushing for that open and honest dialogue. That's what he's talking about here. He says, because you have put aside falsehood, because you are no longer living a lie, speaking a lie, influencing a lie, feeding a lie, having put away the sinful desire to manipulate that, we filled that, we filled that void then with truthful dialogue with people because we are members of one body. Paul is just hammering that corporate nature today. Members of one body. You see, the gospel engages us with truth in our hearts, and we should engage others with truth directed towards their hearts, and vice versa. You need to have people around you who speak truth to you, because that's how we grow, and that's how we are corrected. And for Christians, with Christians, this means being able to lovingly point out sin in your friend's life. People say, oh, don't judge, lest you too be judged. But, but you see also, Paul say, it's, it's the job of those in the church to judge. He says, oh, well, don't, don't, don't point out the stick in your other guy's eye when you've got a plank in yours. Well, it's like, take out your plank, and he's still got a stick in his eye. It needs to be dealt with. Get it out of his eye. It's, it's, it's okay to talk about sin with people. I have times in my life where I wish my close friends, who I have relationship with, who I have given that relational intimacy in my life, I wish they would have confronted me on my sin. I wish they would have spoken truth to me in love, in the idea of not just rebuking me, but leading me towards repentance and pointing me back to Christ. I wish they would have discussed that with me. That means that you then need to also be able to accept this. You need to be able to, to have your sin pointed out and deal with it through the gospel rather than deferring and putting more makeup on the blemish. We need to engage others over the truth of the Bible. We should ask our friends about church. We should ask them how they're reading their Bible. We should ask them about their devotions because we're engaging in truth because we're one body. And as truth builds people, we're building each other up. And really, if I'm standing here, um, and even Sarah in marriage is standing here, and Sarah's not healthy, in marriage we're one, in the church we're one, if she's not healthy, I'm not healthy. It's not just Sarah. If, if Logan's standing up here, and Logan's not healthy spiritually, I'm not healthy spiritually. And so we speak the truth to one another because we want the corporate benefit of speaking truth to one another. For Christians and non-Christians, we need to learn to reframe cultural toxins and cultural jargon in light of the gospel. We should find ways to shoehorn in terms like redemption and grace and forgiveness and sin. And see, we can do that because we've put off falsehood. We can do that because we've put off the fear of man. We've put off the desire to be seen as something that we're not because we care more about their spiritual state because we are selflessly talking and serving and loving them, because for the first time in our life, we're not held captive by our fear, because Christ has conquered that fear. Now we can reach out and we can talk and we can engage at a deeper level, because we have the freedom to do it. We selflessly care more about their health than our own perception. We speak truth, and it affects the corporate body. Second benefit, verses 26 and 27. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. 
Now, these two verses really, really cut me, and I've known about these verses forever. I've read these verses um, so many times, and they, they're hard because it's not saying just don't be angry. That's not what it's saying. It's not saying don't ever, ever be angry, but it's also not saying be angry. See, it would be easy if the Bible said us, don't set, told us don't be angry because then we're like, okay, all anger is bad. Take that anger, lock it up, throw it away. Anytime I have any sort of rage or zeal or passion towards anything, um, just lock it up and throw it away. I can't have that. But that's not what the Bible is saying because, and for reasons that, that God only knows as our maker, because we are image bearers of God and of the Holy Spirit, God has given us the ability to become angry. You see in the scripture um, that the anger is something that, that is biblically discussed. You look at Psalms 4. Um, Psalm 4 verse 4 says this, Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your hearts and on your beds and be silent. And then Proverbs um, 14.29 Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. So not only is anger talked about, but Jesus himself was angry, and he was sinless. The problem is, is that we're not Jesus. We can't just on the spur of the moment become angry and be sinless. It's far more difficult for us to use anger in a right manner. So much more difficult is it for us that I don't even know how to describe it. I don't know... What, what, what selfless, righteous anger looks like on a human level. I, I, I don't know. But this is what I do know. The way scripture talks about anger, the way Paul here says, um, be angry and do not sin. I know that anger can be done in such a way where it is not a sin and in a way where it is actually good for community. And that's the real catch. Because my anger is normally not good for community. This is where it's challenging because it's easy to get me angry. It's easy to get me riled up. But this is what really causes me to check my heart. Because I don't think, I, there, there's one time I could think of where I may have been close to this. But knowing me, I probably wasn't. There, there's, there's not a single time I can think of that my anger was slow to come filtered through the gospel, and other people-minded. My anger is always about, have you wronged me? Have I perceived a wrong? Am I getting what I want? And is the world being ran in the way I think it should be ran? Anger's about me. Even if, even if you sin against my son, and I'm angry about how you sinned against my son, it's typically because that's my son, that's my property, and you can't do that to my son. And, and it's selfish. And there is a right way, and I'm not saying you shouldn't be angry about those kind of things, but it's a challenge to think of your motives when you begin to get down with that. You see, my anger is dangerous, but Christ's danger was redemptive. And there is a way, in some way that we can't grasp, that there is an anger that is slow to develop, vetted by the Holy Spirit, and a blessing to a community rather than a danger. What does your anger do? Is your anger something that builds community? Is your anger something that kills community? So here's how you get a good grasp of anger. This is what I know. Put away bad anger. 
put away bad anger. And for most of us, that's anytime we get angry. Anytime you become zealous and passionate for something, look at it in contrast to the gospel. Sift through it through redemption. Repent of any self-interest you may have in it. And realize also the catch of this anger, the catch of biblical anger, is that anger is slow to come and quick to leave. Look at Ephesians 4.26 again, where it says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. So here's, here's, here's a way to sift your anger. Are you mad at it over a 24 period of time? Are you stewing over it? Is it lingering in your heart? You're probably in sin, and you probably need to repent. It's slow to come because it's filtered through the gospel, but it's quick to leave because it's resolved in Christ. And while I don't know what it looks like or how it happens, I know if we are committed as a group to put away selfish anger, to selflessly follow the gospel and serve others, God may work a miraculous work inside of us where he will redeem our anger for a corporate and Christward benefit. And when we do that, it'll figure itself out. But until then, be committed to that. Until then, check your motives and be content in Christ. And that's for the good of the community. That's for the blessing of those who are around you. The third corporate aspect um, of putting on Christ, Ephesians 4.28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. And see, this is very much what Hugh Welchel spoke about. Um, when he was here. Our work, and what he's saying is you're working to give. You're working to contribute. You're working for a corporate effect. That means you could work as a student. You could work as an employee. You could work as a Christian, as a spouse, as a parent. Whatever you do that you're working at, your work is constructive to community. It is building something. It is benefiting people. It is corporate by nature. And that's because the gospel is a giving gospel. The focus of the gospel is inward, but the results are outward. The results are people and product-centric. And many of you look at this passage we just read where it talks about don't be a thief, don't be stealing. And we could say that, that we don't really struggle with that. We don't struggle. No one's walking into Walmart right now and stealing things off of shelves. But that's because we tend to think of stealing only in terms of the physical. When's the last time I've stolen a magazine? or a toy, um, that was always the, th I remember my little sister walked out of a store once with like a baby name book when she was like two, and I'm like, well, we're all going to prison. Um, like, she stole, we're dead. Um, and we haven't done that, and, and, but it's because we think of it in terms of the physical, but it's very, very easy, especially in the Christian community, to be thieves of other things. You see, some of you are unhealthily obsessed with, with attention and affection and affirmation, so much so that you force everyone in the room with you to serve you with their conversations and emotions. To where you need to be made much of, you need to be affirmed, you need to be given attention, you need to receive counsel. It's like everything's 911 in your life. Talk to me, speak to me, love on me, make much of me. And that needs to be repented of. Because that's stealing for selfish gain. That's not creating something to be given away. It's taking something to be hoarded. And so many times we do this with our comfort, serve me. So many times we do this with things. Well, if I only have this, then I can do that. Sometimes we do that with relationships. 
with our boyfriends and with our girlfriends. We take it and we take from them and we need from them. And so many times, especially in Christian college groups, you'll get a guy or a girl who robs emotional um, romantic affection from people because they think that's what they need. But that is harmful and toxic to community because you're seeking for something that God created to fill a void that only God himself can fill. That's thievery. That's stealing. But Paul says in 2 Corinthians that he is content with everything because in his weakness, in his want, Christ is strong and abounding and to be treasured. And when we are truly content in Christ, then we can selflessly labor for others rather than for the selfish sake of our own because we're filth. We don't need to steal because Christ has affirmed us. In the cross, we are most affirmed in who Christ is. In the cross, we are most loved. In the cross, we are most accepted. In the cross, we have an abundance, a, a, a wellspring of life that will never, ever fade away. And so, are you building community around you? Are you incur an encouragement to those who are around you? Or are, th are you a thief? Are you content serving, loving, um, and, and selflessly giving your life to the lives of others because Christ did the same for you? Or do you need, and do you want, and do you take? Are you content to selflessly serve in the background, knowing that the praise is Christ's and the gain is corporate? Because this is what it takes to build, to give, and to share with anyone in need. To give away something, you have to have something. If you're always in want, you're going to be a bad giver. But if you're filled in Christ, you're going to give away so much more than you ever could have imagined with your time, with your talents, with your treasures, with your skill, and with all that you are. The fourth corporate aspect of putting on Christ is corporate talk. Verse, starting in verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And see, this concept, this, and I'm going to read it again. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for, the, for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Like I said, this is of utmost importance for us to grasp because of what else is said in Scripture. And we see in Luke 6, verse 45, where Luke, or Jesus says this. He says, The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. We also see in John, John 13, 35, um, Jesus says this, By this, all people will know you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And you see, we need to pay close attention to our hearts because our hearts are telling of our hope. Pay close attention to your heart because your heart is telling of your hope. Our mouths point to our heart and our heart points to our Savior. And if we are not loving towards others, Jesus says you're killing him publicly. If our words do not represent the love of Christ, you're killing Christ, you're mocking Christ, you're shaming Christ in the public square. And we know what corrupting talk is. We understand that, right? We know mom's line. If you don't have anything good to say, don't say it at all. But the Bible goes one step further. It says if you don't have anything constructive to say, don't say it at all. We know not to swear. We know not to gossip. We know not to slander, mock, and put down. But do we know how to build people up with our words? 
Do we know what it looks like to be a wellspring of life from our tongue, to be an encourager, to be a life giver? Because so often in our culture, it's normal and it's funny and it's humorous to tear people down with your words. And I am the biggest victim of that. I've often said in joking, I said, you know, if, you know I like you if I make fun of you. Um, and just how backwards is that to how the Bible talks about things? We all struggle enough with our actions to build people up. How much harder is it with our words, which are flippant and fleeting and oftentimes thoughtless? And as I said, I wrestle with this, but I'm committed to getting better because to affirm people in a godly way with your words is one of the greatest ways to give away the gospel. It's one of the simplest ways to give away the gospel because Christ is an affirming Christ. He's an affirming savior. And I have a resource for you guys. If you are a person um, who struggles with your words, who struggles, um, and not simply, well, I don't swear, so I'm pretty good. If you struggle with affirming, if you struggle with building people up, a great little book, it's like, it's like this big, and it's like 112 pages. It's by a guy named Sam Crabtree, and it's called Practicing Affirmation. Um, I had to read that for class at seminary, and it has probably been the biggest shaping influence on how I talk because he so um, brings out the biblical weight of building people up with your words. And so to affirm people, you must learn to affirm people Christly. It's easy to just say good job to everything that happens, but oftentimes some things don't warrant good job. That means you don't affirm people for anything and everything, but you affirm people who are giving us glimpses of Christ because there's nothing greater to be affirmed than Christ himself. And so when we see people who are exhibiting Christ-like qualities, we affirm that and we praise God for that work that's being done in that person's life. You affirm things you want to see repeated. You affirm things that want to be strengthened and you build up a community in your language. When was the last time, right now think in your heads, when was the last time you used a coarse joke or a profanity or an off-the-cuff insult or even just kind of joyful, playful mocking? Most of us can think of an instance today. But when was the last time you affirmed somebody with your words? You promoted Christ in that person with your words. Some of us have to think harder on that. That shouldn't be the case if we're a gospel community. That shouldn't be the case if our hearts have been transformed by the work of God. Because out of the overflow of our redeemed and perfect and satisfied heart, out of that overflow, the mouth speaks. And if the mouth struggles, we need to go back to the source. When was the last time you allowed the love of Christ in your heart to be the love of Christ spoken from your heart? When was the last time that was made visible through your words? This is how the world knows Christ, is what Jesus said. And our loving dialogue with one another, and that's really the, the most obvious way people will see our love, is how we speak to one another. And when people see the love Christians have for one another, and they see the love Christians have for people, they see Christ. And through our proclamation of the gospel and our speech stemming from the gospel, the world comes to know Christ because they see glimpses of transformed hearts. Let me give you an example here real quick. I had a phone call um, on Tuesday with a pastor buddy of mine in Spokane. Um, and and uh, I've only met him a couple times before. Uh, I went to a, a seminar uh, and met him, and then I went to his church when I was in Spokane a couple times and met him, and then he was at a class with me in seminary um, this summer. And so we just kind of got to know each other um, through that. And I called him the other day because I had a question for him. And the first thing we ask each other is, like, how are you doing? And I'm, expe I'm expecting him to say, like, oh, pretty good, what's up? 
Um, and what he says, he's like, I'm doing good. And then he starts talking about his family. Um, and then he starts talking about, you know, how he's doing personally and how he's doing spiritually. Um, and just sharing with me uh, glimpses into his family. And then he asked me how I was doing spiritually. And, and because he had shared that, I began to share that in my own life. With a guy I've, I've known for probably a sum total of 12 hours, um, we start discussing our sins and we start discussing our shortcomings. And um, he, he's, how's, how's your Bible reading go, going? And then I start discussing how I'm reading the Bible and he's struggling with the same things. And then we affirm each other in that. And I asked how I could pray for him and I've been praying for him this week. And then he asked how he could pray for me um, and he, he prayed for me over the phone. And really what I wanted from him um, was an answer regarding the program, a program that they run. But what I got from him was one of the most refreshing conversations I've ever had. And I remember I came home and was talking to Sarah and I'm just like, that was, that, that was the most encouraging thing. And it wasn't, it wasn't complex, it was super simple, but he spoke truth to me, he affirmed me, and I affirmed him. And that was probably the single most rewarding conversation I've had with a guy I've known for probably the fewest amount of hours. Because that's what Christian communities do. And that's what a relationship bound to the gospel produces. The simple nature of words is a deep tool for gospel growth. Learn to use it. Learn to use it freely and abundantly. Lastly, we're going to look at the fifth corporate aspect of putting on Christ. We see this in verses 30 through 32. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander. And see, just, just look at those words. Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and slander. Bitterness. How many times can you see somebody and say, that's a bitter person. They have a sour attitude. You look at wrath. Wrath is always visible. It starts internal, but it becomes visible. Anger is the same way. Clamor, just that loud, boisterous, uh, obnoxious, harsh-sounding person. And slander, which is always against somebody else. When that's put away with you, along with all malice, so, so will ill um, between people. Instead, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Lastly, we look at our corporate witness. And so, why do we focus on not simply putting off sin and moving towards putting on Christ? We do that because the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. We do that because the Holy Spirit, which God put inside of us the moment we became converted, demands a Christ-centered home. And with all of the power of the Holy Spirit, which is all the power of God, he labors in us for a Christ-centered home, and he begins to turn us into a Christ-centered home. And to grieve the Holy Spirit is to be a person bought by Christ who does not reflect the transformation of Christ. But I love how this ends because it's so hard to, to look at that and be encouraged because I see my life and I'm like, I can't do that. I know my heart. I know my struggles. I know my fears. I know my sins. But look at how it ends in verse 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. You see, everything Paul just said comes down to what Christ has already done. You cannot do unless Christ has done. 
And Christ has done a great work in us because Christ killed our sin nature and brought us into his family. He has given us the Holy Spirit. And because of that power, we then have the ability to live Christianly in light of Christ. And when we do this, the, the, the personal effects are astounding. We are free. Our burdens are loosed. We have been restored. We sing a new song. We have new life. We're a new creation. We are a wellspring. We are a picture of redemption. We are adopted into the family of God. All these are deeply personal. But when we do this, the corporate effect is astounding. We encourage the church. We build the church. We love the church. We reach the lost. We preach to the lost. We serve the lost and we give glory to Christ. And as we do this, the witness of Christ is seen in a strength that cannot be seen in an individual because the effects are overwhelmingly corporate. And you see, so many of us are undisciplined in our life that we look at these things and like that math equation I started on, you look at it and you say, I can't do it. Here's my paper. Give me enough. You know, I'm never going to be perfect. I'm never going to be able to do these. Christ's blood was enough. I'm going to wrestle with this and I'm not really going to try about it. We easily give in to our old self as we struggle and wrestle to put on the new self. But that means we need to learn to use the three gifts that Christ has given us to strengthen our walk. We need to be mindful of the cross because on the cross, Jesus conquered sin, choked it out, and bound it. And we need to learn to live in light of that victory. I always say that and I know the metaphor is flawed because we know what cow tipping is here in Montana. But really, the, the life of a Christian is cow tipping. It's like we think we're fighting a dragon. It's like it's a sleeping cow. Go push it over. But sometimes we're, we're too scared to do that. And we blow up our sin failing to see that Christ has slayed it and Christ has conquered over it. Learn to treasure the cross. Learn to use the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit proclaims to us the truth of Christ's victory so that we can say no to sin and yes to Christ. The truth is the thing that tells us it's just a cow. It's just a cardboard cutout. Go push on it. Go tap on it and see how hollow it rings and see the abounding weight of Christ's victory. The cross, the Holy Spirit, and thirdly, the church. We need the church to be the church. And we need to be the church. We need the church to be the church, and we also need to be the church. Because we're encouraged by those who labor, by those who speak truth, by those who, who, build our, uh, who build us up with their labors and with their lives, who encourage us with those words. And you also need to be that person. You will benefit at some point by, your, by someone who is committed to, to personal commitment to Christ, and it affects you corporately. Were you around somebody who's overwhelmed with the gospel and you find that contagious? We've all benefited by people like that. You then need to be a person like that because those kind of people come only from a commitment to the gospel and nothing else. And you see, the effects of following Christ are corporate because Jesus came to redeem and to restore. Jesus came to make better people who were not himself meaning Christ was focused on others and not so self-obsessed that he hoarded, but he wanted to receive glory and honor and might through bringing dead hearts to life. So we as Christ followers are committed to pursuing Christ individually and watching the corporate effects and being mindful of our corporate duties. If you lose the gospel, you lose corporate witness. But we have a gospel which is imperishable, undefiled, undefiled and unfading. 
As you become mastered by the gospel, you can put off sin and you can put on Christ. This is what's best for you. This is what's best for the church. And this is what is best for each and every person you come in contact with. And so let's pray that God gives us the ability to pursue Christ, put off sin, put on the new self, and encourage the body and preach Christ to all that we are. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you um, that you make it um, you make it the easiest thing to follow you because we're living in light of a perfect victory. And Lord, I thank you that the, 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 the way in which we make a difference for this world is simply to pursue Christ at a deeper level. And the more we pursue Christ and the more we follow Christ, the more by nature of the transformation you've put inside of us, we begin to change and affect and influence those who are around us. So Lord, I pray that the Holy Spirit makes each and every one of us awkward in here. We pray that the Holy Spirit makes us uncomfortable with the current state of who we are, uh, does not allow us to become satisfied in simply the removal of sin, but pushes us and puts up such a picture of Christ that we desire with all of our heart to put that on daily. Lord, make us your church. Let us live as your church. Receive glory through the church and worship through the church. And may your church grow by the faithful people who are representatives of Christ here on the earth. Praise in your name. Amen.